Well, if you would meet me in Luke chapter 18. There it is. So what we're going to do for the next, uh, starting today and the next several weeks, is we're going to jump ahead and really focus on Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, uh, focus on the Passion Week, uh, that week of Palm Sunday leading up to um, his last Passover and the Last Supper, communion with his disciples on that Thursday night, uh, and then his death on Friday, his resurrection on Sunday. So um, we're, we're skipping ahead a little bit, but we are going to focus on these several chapters uh, on Wednesday night. And so I would really encourage you, if you have never joined us on Wednesday night, or it's been a while since you've joined us on Wednesday night, join us, because uh, we spent last week just, just studying Luke 16. Um, and just sharing insights and observations from the text and trying to figure out uh, some really difficult parables there uh, as Jesus uh, gives two parables specifically about money and possessions, finances. Um, And then so we'll continue on Wednesday nights that direction and really is going to add even insight and color into these next several Sundays as we uh, finish Luke 18 and start into 19 uh, this Sunday with some familiar passages. Uh, flannel board stories in a way if you grew up uh, going to Sunday school and church. So uh, we're going to you know, end this morning looking at Zacchaeus. A wee little man was he, right? We have songs that we sang as kids about uh, Zacchaeus get down from that sycamore tree, right? Uh, but uh, as, as we dive in, uh, let me just pray uh, for our time in the text this morning. Uh, and then we'll make some observations together and uh, see what God has in store for us. Father, this morning we pray, as we always do, that you would be our teacher, that you would guide us uh, as we look at your very words through your inspired author, Luke. And uh, would we, uh, as Luke writes, would we, along with um, his targeted audience of Theophilus and ultimately us, uh, grow in our certainty and confidence in Christ uh, through looking at the person and work of Christ, uh, how we encountered Uh, people of all backgrounds, of all shapes and sizes, um, of all persuasions, of all whatever was going on, how Jesus pursued the lost, uh, seeking to save us, uh, lost individuals desperately needing help, um, hopeless uh, without him. And as we just sang, uh, Jesus, our living hope, because we know what he did. We're not stuck in the middle of the story, but we live 2,000 years after Uh, Him conquering uh, the grave, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering Satan, uh, rising again uh, so that we, like him, uh, could walk in newness of life uh, as sons and daughters of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. That's all. All right, so if you remember, uh, we've been looking, obviously, at Luke uh, for two school years now uh, with some breaks in the middle. Uh, But Luke is all about Jesus, right? Having certainty in Christ. So Luke is writing an orderly account of the things that have taken place so that we would have certainty. So that we would look at the person and work of Christ and grow in our hope, our confidence, our certainty in him, our trust in him. Uh, And then Luke is giving us pictures. He's comparing and contrasting throughout the whole narrative. uh, Pictures of those who don't see Jesus, who don't get who he is, and then some who do. And those people seem to be opposite of what we would expect, right? The religious leaders often are missing Jesus, and he's right in front of them. 
They're experts in the Old Testament. They should know the Old Testament's pointing to him. He's come to fulfill this. It's all part of God's plan, and they're missing Jesus, right? We would have expected them to get it. And then we have um, the marginalized, the people on the fringes of society, uh, Jesus pursuing people that society would never pursue themselves, right? Tax collectors, sinners, women, uh, prostitutes, left and right. Jesus is seeking and saving the lost. No matter who you are, Jesus is saying, hey, you're all invited. You're all lost. You all need to be found. You're all blind. You all need to see. And so Jesus is giving pictures uh, left and or Luke is giving pictures of those seeing Jesus and those not seeing Jesus. And so we've had the last few weeks we were in Luke 15 and does anybody remember the, the four ideas or words or themes that we were looking at as we looked at the, the parable of uh, the shepherd and the sheep, the parable of the woman and the coin, the parable of the father and the two sons? What were some of the, there were four that we were looking for as we navigated that whole chapter of Luke? Anybody remember? Lost, found, okay? The joy of when someone who was lost is found. That's the response, right? And then the turning, the evidence of someone who was lost being found, right? Repentance, the turning of directions, the stop everything and following Jesus kind of thing, right? And so we're going to see that again in Luke 18 and 19. And Luke's going to use great irony because uh, in the narrative, uh, in chapter 18, he gives this story of a rich young ruler had everything going for him. Um, he was young, he was male, he was wealthy, he, w- he was in power, right? He was the epitome of success and prestige in the first century. He had everything going for him. And yet he asked Jesus a question, and it's really the most important question of his day, right? This was, uh, what must I do to in- inherit eternal life? And so Jesus gets this question a lot because it was the central question being asked uh, as Jesus was pointing people, uh, pointing people to himself ultimately as the fulfillment of the scriptures as the promised Messiah. And this guy answers correctly in so many ways, and then Jesus challenges him in his wealth and his love of money and possessions. And does anybody remember from the story? We haven't covered it on Sunday, but we will in a couple Wednesdays. Anybody remember his response? It wasn't a response of joy. He was sad. He went away sad because he loved his money and couldn't give it up. And we just looked on Wednesday, this last Wednesday, at these parables, uh, ultimately about money and possessions and treasure. And Jesus says, you can't love money and God. You can only love and worship and follow one of them. Right? So really challenging insights. So we have a rich young ruler who visibly can see Jesus, but spiritually cannot. Right? Then we're going to see the disciples. Jesus is going to tell his disciples for the third time in Luke's narrative about his upcoming death and resurrection. And the text tells us they were unclear about all these things until after his death and resurrection. Then things became clear. They couldn't understand. And so they could physically see Jesus. Yet spiritually, they could not. Yet. And the irony is Luke uses a story of a blind man who sees Jesus. Pretty remarkable. Everybody, left and right, seeing Jesus physically, yet not spiritually. They're lost. They're spiritually blind. And yet we have a blind man who gets who Jesus is without seeing any of the miracles, any of the demonstrations. He hasn't seen anything. He's a great demonstration of faith. He hears who Jesus is, 
And he says, Jesus, save me, essentially. All right. So this morning, we're gonna, Jesus is going to approach Jericho and go through Jericho. Jericho's just northeast, about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. So we're getting close. Next Sunday, we'll look at Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem as we start Passion Week, uh, covering these next several Sundays. Uh, and so back in Luke uh, 9, we have Jesus resolutely set his face to Jerusalem. So that's where he's going and why he's going there. So, uh, and Luke is reminding us, this is a big idea. The central portion of Luke, it's all about the fact that Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. That's why he came to earth. That's where he's going. No one's going to get in his way. That's God's plan from the very beginning and God's will for him, that he, he would go to the cross willfully, obediently. And so Luke is reminding us through this middle section of narrative. And so we have verses uh, right there as we start at the end of chapter 9. Time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. Jesus set his face to Jerusalem or resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Uh, and then the Samaritans wouldn't accept him, right? He just wanted a place to stay. And they, 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 they wanted nothing to do with him. And it says because he was heading for Jerusalem. So chapter 10, Jesus and his disciples were on their way, implied they're on their way to Jerusalem. Chapter 13, Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as, his, as he made his way to Jerusalem. Luke is continuing to remind us as readers, this is where he's going and why he's going there. Don't forget, don't get caught up in the cute stories. He's going to Jerusalem. Chapter 17, now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus did this. And then 18, we're going to start in this uh, short passage. Uh, Jesus specifically says, hey, 12 disciples who have called apostles. We are going to Jerusalem. Don't try to persuade me otherwise. Don't get in my way. We are going to Jerusalem together. All right. So let me read uh, kind of the whole uh, text that is my goal to cover this Sunday. And then we'll break it up uh, in these three little passages. So uh, Luke 18, starting in verse 31. Hopefully you're there uh, by now. But Luke records this. This is right after this story of a rich, rich young ruler who went away sad because he loved his money and possessions and wealth too much. So verse 31, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him on the third day. He will rise again. Jesus talking to the disciples about himself, right? The Son of Man is an expression from the book of Daniel that Jesus has applied to himself. Verse 34, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Verse 35, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the, the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered this, uh, the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they praised, they also 
Praise God. Chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. Pretty smart move. Verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Right? The response we've seen consistently from the religious leaders, from the elite, from you name it. Verse 8, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay him back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Alright, so I want to begin with this uh, Jesus predicting his death a third time. And then we'll look at this, um, these two examples of blind seeing and lost being found as, as we continue the narrative. So Jesus is predicting his death a third time. So Jesus is sitting down. He he kind of takes the 12, uh, his 12 closest, those 12 that he initially called and then called called apostles. Um, He takes the 12 and tells them, very matter-of-factly, we're going to Jerusalem. Everything that's written by the prophets about me will be fulfilled. I will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock me, insult me, spit on me. They will flog me and kill me. On the third day, I will rise again. And in a response, just like I know I would have had if I was there, I would have been like, what are you talking about? And he's told them three times now. The previous two recorded in Luke are in chapter 9, before Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. But the disciples didn't understand any of this. Right? And Luke is continuing. Why does Luke tell, say, it, say that? Because we all need reminders, right? Keep reinforcing this um, and preparing the disciples for what's to take place so that when it takes place, they can say, oh, yeah, didn't he tell us this was going to happen? Why did we try to get in the way? In a way, I don't know. If they have regrets. Did not know what he was talking about. So first thing we see in the text, the crucifixion was not an accident. God planned it. Uh, when you make plans, it, it stresses importance, right? If you plan ahead for something, it's, it's stressing the importance or significance of a certain event, right? You're going to mark it on the calendar. You're going to set, set aside time uh, and energy for this, right? God has planned this. It's not an accident. This was planned from the very beginning. The Old Testament scriptures are all pointing to this event in human history, right? It's not as if Israel didn't uh, stay faithful, so God had plan B. No, this was the plan from the very beginning. Uh, And he planned his suffering and resurrection for our benefit. And so there's a couple verbs in there, I think six verbs, explaining what was going to happen. And these verbs aren't just new ideas from Jesus. These verbs are taken from the very scriptures they have, the very Old Testament. That was their Jewish scriptures. And so they're going to deliver me to the Gentiles. They're going to mock me, insult me, spit on me, flog me, and kill me. 
Right? So Jesus is just saying, hey, we're going to Jerusalem, guys, and this is why. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be easy. But this is God's plan. This is God's intent from the very beginning. And it's for our benefit. I like the way uh, Luke talks about this in the book of Acts, right? So Luke and Acts are volume one and two of Luke's real big volume of, you know, the life and ministry of Christ while he was here. Now the life and ministry of Jesus after he leaves through the power of the, through the, power of the Holy Spirit. And so in the book of Acts, um, through Peter, uh, Peter speaking in Acts chapter 2, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. This is the same Peter that was sitting there in Luke 18 and didn't understand what Jesus was saying, right? Uh, As you yourselves know and have seen. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Right? This was no accident. God planned this. This was God's desire. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. Well, that's an interesting phrase. You just said this was God's plan and foreknowledge. But then Peter just says, hey, you killed Jesus. Doesn't he? Does that seem like a tension we've talked about in, throughout the scriptures? God's sovereignty, human responsibility. Are people that put Jesus to death going to be held responsible? Absolutely. So it raises the question as we approach Easter, who killed Jesus? Did God the Father kill Jesus? Did Pontius Pilate and those Roman officials kill Jesus? Or did we kill Jesus? Yes, as my dad would say. Yes. Absolutely. All of the above. God's plan, well, with lots of human help, right? God using human, uh, humans, men and women, to accomplish his sovereign will. That's a theme throughout scripture from the very beginning to the very end. All right, human responsibility, God's sovereignty, all in one place. So you... Uh, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. What a beautiful verse as we approach Easter. It was impossible for death, for Satan, for sin, to keep its hold on Christ, to keep him in the grave. It was impossible. All right, so the last point, we don't want to miss the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection. So the disciples... Verse 34, it says, they did not understand any of this. And is that, in, is that directly at what Jesus just told them? Or is that all, you know, all the previous narratives when Jesus is giving warnings and then talking about money and then this rich young ruler and they're scratching their head? Well, I think uh, maybe both, but specifically about what Jesus just said. We're going to Jerusalem. Here's what's going to happen. This is God's will. And it's for your benefit. This has to happen. It's for your good. It's for your joy. And it's for God's glory all at the same time. And we don't want to miss it like the disciples missed it at that point, right? They got it after the resurrection, right? Because it emboldened them to go from people scared and hiding to men who would risk their lives and eventually lose their lives as martyrs for the truth of what they have seen, that Jesus conquered death. All right. That leads into a blind man, Jesus 
um, and, and the irony through Luke's message here of a blind man seeing Jesus when people with physical vision miss him. Is that ironic? That's a little ironic, right? I think it's kind of cool. All right, so let's read the text again. As Jesus approached Jericho, chapter 8, verse 35, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus, uh, or Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When others saw this, they also praised God. So some observations from this blind man. I think this is a beautiful picture of the the journey of faith, right? The author of Hebrews compares faith to sight, almost like the opposite opposite of faith is sight, right? This man has no sight. Yet he's a beautiful picture of the journey of faith. And so uh, he's conscious of his own need, right? So uh, he hears a commotion. He's begging on the road. He's blind. He's at the mercy of people giving him handouts and scraps, And he realizes he has a great need. But he also realizes his need isn't physical. Simply physical. It's much more than that. And so he recognizes Jesus for who he is. He hears that it's Jesus of Nazareth passing by. And what's his, what what does he say? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now Jesus, son of David, points back to Jesus fulfilling the prophet through the prophet Samuel, right? That Jesus would be in the line of King David that his kingdom would never end, right? His throne would be established forever, right? And this is a beautiful, maybe the most explicit expression of the reality of who Jesus is in the book of Luke. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I know who you are, the blind man says. I have, I, I've never seen you, but I know exactly who you are. I can see who you are. You're the son of David. You're the promised Messiah. Have mercy on me. And it's interesting, also recognizes Jesus as his help, as his hope, as his deliverer. But it's interesting how people want to get in the way, right? Next week, we'll look at the triumphal entry, and people are making a commotion as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And the religious leaders try to keep the crowd quiet, right, and shut people up. One of my favorite verses in Scripture, do you know what happens when Jesus responds to them? He says, well, if they're going to be quiet, even the rocks will cry out. Inanimate objects crying out, Hosanna, save us. And so he recognizes his need. He recognizes Jesus as the one who can meet that need, not just physically, but spiritually. Uh, and he's, he, he's not giving up. They try to stop him. And all the more, the text says, right, all the more he shouts, son of David, have mercy on me. What a beautiful picture of the journey of faith, recognizing that I need help and that I won't let anybody or anything get in the way of me getting that help. And his healing comes through faith. And so Jesus, Jesus says, hey, what do you want me to do for you? Great, great question, kind of obvious uh, on the surface level. 
Lord, I want to see, he replied. Was he talking about physical sight? Yeah, but, um. yeah but, okay. Or spiritual sight, yeah. Jesus said to him, receive your, fight, your, your sight. Your faith has healed you. His faith has healed him. His faith has healed him physically. Or option A. His faith, option B, his faith has healed him spiritually. Option C, his faith has healed him physically and spiritually. Oh, that's an easy answer. Maybe. I actually think Jesus was referring to his spiritual salvation, not physical. Because, and, we, and it's not fair, not fair of a question for me to ask because we skipped this passage. So this Wednesday we'll look at it. Jesus, Luke records a story of Jesus healing ten men with leprosy. And then they go out and only one returns to Jesus, healed. And in the middle of Luke 17, Jesus uses that same phrase, your faith has made you well. In essence, your faith has healed you. But he only says that to the one who's returned, not to the other nine who he's healed physically, but he only says it to the one who returns back to him after going out. It's interesting. So you may be right. Maybe it's safer to just say B, uh, option C, both and. Let's go with it. All right. Man's authenticity of faith was demonstrated. Beautiful picture here. Your faith has healed you. Verse 43, immediately he received his sight and what? He didn't just go back to his spot begging. He followed Jesus. And so he went from a blind man along the way to Jerusalem to a follower of Christ on the way to Jerusalem. Right? So we have lost, we have found, we have the joy that comes when a lost person is found, and we have evidence of a lost person being found. Right? Your faith has healed you. Here's a demonstration of your faith healing you. He left, he just stopped and followed Jesus. He gave up everything that he used to do and the way he used to think, and everything changed for him. His thinking uh, resulted in a change of behavior. He uh, joins Jesus now on the way to Jerusalem. Would it have been more comfortable just to stay there and beg? Probably because Jesus is going to Jerusalem for a specific reason. All right. Do we have time for Zacchaeus? He's a wee little man. Chapter 19. Again, another story of a person who is lost being found in the life transformation when we actually see Jesus for who he really is, right? So we have a blind man seeing Jesus for who he really is, being found by Jesus. Now we have Zacchaeus, an enemy to Israel in a way, a traitor, a tax collector. He was very wealthy as well. So as we read this, it's interesting because Jesus is giving a lot of stories about money and how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So in chapter 18, he says, it's easier for what? A camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God, which would beg the question, who then can be saved, they say, in in the middle of this passage about the rich young ruler. That's a great question. It makes it seem like anybody rich can't be saved. Western civilization, all of us are rich compared to the world. So do we have any chance? 
We do. And so Jesus gives us a story of a rich man who recognizes Jesus for who he is. There's hope. Not to bring up tax collections and everything, but, you know, you are a month away from all that. So chapter 19, verse 1, familiar story. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through a man there by the name of Zacchaeus. Uh, he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who... He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a tree to see him. Since Jesus was coming that way, when, he, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Gladly, with joy, rejoicing. Right? Almost said like New Jersey. Joy. Rejoice. I'm... I don't claim my New Jersey status very often. Sorry. Verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be a guest of a sinner. Why would you do that? Verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Right? Zacchaeus, you and your house, for you are son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Essentially, Zacchaeus, you were lost. I came to seek and to save you. All right, so a couple things we see. He was living the good life. Chief tax collector, not just a tax collector, but he was in charge. He was raking in the dough and he was wealthy, right? The text just says, very matter-of-factly, he was wealthy. Luke wants us to know he's wealthy. I'm going to keep repeating that. After he just said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now we get a wealthy man who's making it through that eye of the needle. So he's living a good life. He's interested in Jesus, right? The text tells us he wants to see Jesus, right? Verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he's short, he could not see over the crowd. It's really rare to talk about physical attributes in uh, in, in the scriptures, even in first century context, in all first century writing. But Luke makes a point. Because he's short, he can't see Jesus physically. So he's, he thinks of something he could do. He runs ahead, knowing Jesus is going through Jericho, and he climbs a tree so he could see, right? Makes sense. Pretty smart move for the short man, Right? He's interested in Jesus. Jesus, he was approached by Jesus. Interestingly enough, uh, when Jesus reaches that spot, reaches that tree, it's almost like Jesus knew he was there. Jesus was prepared to talk to him. Jesus knew he was going to Zacchaeus' house today before he even interacted with Zacchaeus. Right? So as much as Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus and even climbed a tree so he could see Jesus physically, Jesus is going to find Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus come down, he looks up and, and sees Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus come down immediately, right? And so Jesus approaches him, invites him, has the audacity to invite himself over for dinner, right? Which is what you're going to do when you want a vacation in the winter, uh, when you call me, right? Okay, no shame. If Jesus can do it, you can do it. Uh, and then Zacchaeus receives Jesus joyfully. We have lost, we have found, we have the joy when someone lost is found, right? That, that word joy or rejoice is on every page 
of Scripture, right? right? We can't get enough of it because God wants us to have joy as a byproduct of our faith, right? And if you agree with John Piper, and I think Scripture, our joy is directly correlated to God's glory. So that God is glorifying by our finding joy. Uh, well, let me read that again. Verse 6, so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly, or with great joy. Zacchaeus' life was changed forever by meeting Jesus. And Jesus tells us specifically, hey, Zacchaeus, you and your household, but also all of you, the people muttering that I'm hanging out with the sinner, uh, the rich young ruler, all of you, I've came to seek and to save all of you. The door is narrow, but it's open, as we talked about several weeks ago, right? So Zacchaeus stood, stood up and said, Lord, look here, and now I give half of my possession. I'm going to make it right. I might have cheated people out of money as a collect, tax collector working for Rome. Right? I might have taken the extra on top for myself. So I'm going to make it right. I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. Right? And so we have a change of direction. We have evidence of a lost person being found. Right? Repentance, uh, corrected thinking, leading to corrected living. And so he's changed forever. He's demonstrating he has placed his trust, his faith in Christ. He's demonstrating that he sees Jesus. And the life-transforming power that comes when we see Jesus for who he really is. The blind man sees Jesus for who he really is. Zacchaeus sees Jesus for who he really is. Luke is giving us pictures left and right of people who we would never expect the marginalized, the outcasts, the people on fringes, the fringe of society. Seeing Jesus while other people we would expect not seeing Jesus spiritually. And then a phrase we've looked at for the last several weeks, verse, chapter 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So a couple questions. What, so what? So why do I care? Um, why does this matter? And so I just asked what keeps us from seeing Jesus. And there's some stories throughout the narrative and some examples um, that I think Luke is pointing out that maybe we resonate with. And so what keeps us from seeing Jesus? I think sometimes money keeps us from seeing Jesus, right? Jesus is making a big deal about money and possessions throughout the, throughout the narrative. So much so that you can't love and serve God and money at the same time. Choose one God. Not both. Money can be a God if we allow it. Guilt and shame, physical challenges, not diminishing physical healing, but Jesus is making the point, and Luke's making the point through recording the events of Jesus and the words of Jesus, that spiritual healing is the bigger deal, much bigger deal than physical healing. Right? He's performing miracles and healing physically to demonstrate his authority to forgive sins and to heal spiritually. Right? We've seen this from chapter 1. Right, well, he wasn't born in chapter 1, from chapter 4 and on. Right? Problems of the world, busyness, pain, whatever. We have lots of things that keep us, lots of distractions, lots of priorities, lots of things that keep us from seeing Jesus. Right? So what do we do? How do we see Jesus more clearly? And so well, I think just obvious, we read about Jesus. We read the text. And so we started two school years ago looking at the book of Luke just to see Jesus, the life and ministry of Jesus, not to, not to diminish other books of the Bible, but there's something about 
the narrative, the gospel narratives recorded in scripture. The only four authoritative accounts of the life and ministry of Christ. God's very words telling us about who he is and what he did. Contemplate Jesus just thinking and sitting about him as you start watering your lawn and enjoying the sunshine and warmer weather. Just think about who Christ is, why he came um, ultimately seeking and saving the lost, each and every one of us. Hang in with others who are seeing Jesus. Like That's a great idea. If you're not seeing Jesus clearly, hang with some that are. It's going to rub off on you. Or hang with someone that needs to see Jesus because by pointing them to Christ, I'm going to grow in my certainty. I'm going to see Jesus more clearly. By hanging someone, hang with someone who doesn't see Jesus and me trying to help them see Jesus. Show Jesus' love to someone who's hurting. Nothing new. Takeaways that we see every week. Keep looking at Jesus. Keep celebrating Jesus. Making, we've really simplified what we do here. Sunday morning. What we do on Sundays is, is to see Jesus. That's our big idea. That's why we meet on Sunday mornings. That's what we're trying to do on Wednesday nights. Looking at the text, pointing each other to Jesus as we make observations and then draw out applications of the text, right? So making Sundays and, again, an invite, a shameless plug for Wednesday nights, participating in that. Um, and then just thinking about how we spend our time, our energy, the gifts God's given us, how we spend our money. It reflects if and how I treasure Jesus above all else. What do my actions tell me about my faith, right? A blind man started following Jesus, right? He went from being along the way to Jerusalem to being on the way to Jerusalem following Jesus. Zacchaeus was cheating people their money and was a traitor to his own Jewish people. And what did he do? He turned and gave all that back away to follow Jesus, right? So our, how do our actions demonstrate that Jesus is our greatest treasure, that we've trusted in him above all else, that there's more joy in him than anybody or anything this world can offer? Let me pray. Let me close. God, thanks for your love. Thanks for Luke's narrative, using Luke as well as a couple others to give us uh, accounts of the life of Christ, to see what he did, to see what he said, to see how he interacted with people, to see how he sought after people, to see how he corrected people and challenged people, to see how he encouraged and loved and showed great mercy. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. The blind man and ultimately we, each and every one of us, need to say as we contemplate the reality of us being lost and blind and us needing to see Jesus and be found by him. So as we close in song, would you be honored and glorified? Would Christ's name be lifted high in this place today and forever? We pray. Amen.